welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons. There's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Al Capone. Now let's continue with our story about Al Capone. The murder of Weiss was one of several gangland hits carried out by a newer face in the Capone entourage. Born Vincenzo Gibaldi in Licata, Sicily, Gibaldi's family emigrated to Brooklyn when he was a boy, where his father died in Brooklyn under uncertain circumstances, and his mother remarried Angelo de Mora, a Chicago grocer. De Mora sold large quantities of sugar, a major ingredient in illicitly produced alcohol to competitors of the Jennas, who murdered him as a result. By then, Vincenzo Gibaldi was a former boxer who would change his name to Jack McGurn, Irish fighters always more popular with Chicago fight crowds. He quit after a mediocre pro career, but through contacts became a bodyguard for the Capone organization, while systematically murdering anyone who had anything to do with his stepfather's killing. Al Capone, impressed by this kind of ruthless mentality, assigned McGurn the task of neutralizing the O'Donnells, a small but annoying gang of bootleggers who occasionally impinged on the outfit's Chicago territory. On April 27th, a Lincoln limousine that belonged to Klondike O'Donnell was borrowed by Thomas Red Duffy, an O'Donnell gang member, who eventually picked up both of the O'Donnell brothers. Typically, this group then brazenly headed to the center of Cicero on a drunken pub crawl only blocks away from the Hawthorne Inn. Al Capone was eating dinner when he received word that the O'Donnell gang was literally partying it up on his turf right around the corner. Within minutes, several automobiles filled with Capone Confederates headed over to the night spot in question and easily located Klondike's Lincoln. When the O'Donnell group emerged, someone rumored to be Jack McGurn cut loose with a machine gun. The O'Donnell brothers escaped, but two low-level soldiers in their mob were killed, and stunningly, William McSwiggan, the same prosecutor who attempted to indict Capone for the murder of Joe Howard. Just what McSwiggan was doing with a bunch of Chicago bootleggers was as much of a mystery as who killed him. The 26-year-old, it turned out, was childhood buddies with one of the O'Donnell gang members, but it still didn't smell right. In any case, the legal hierarchy was not about to ignore the murder of a prominent civil servant. So Capone, Frank Nitti, another high-ranking outfit member, and McGurn himself all got out of town. Capone first hit out in plain sight in the nondescript home of a low-level associate, but then headed to Lansing, Michigan, and shelter there with a network of former Chicago Italian residents. For four months, he waited until finally he decided to respond to the murder warrant that was issued for his arrest. Heading back to Chicago in late July of 1926, he appeared before a judge 
who immediately dismissed the case for lack of evidence. Whether this was the result of skullduggery on Capone's part, or because Chicago prosecutors knew that McSwiggin's night out with a bunch of gangsters was not a one-off, but in fact he had been involved in frequent mob fraternization involving drinking and gambling, one thing was clear. Al Capone was a free man. The deaths of Capone's two arch-rivals, Weiss and Drucci, did not diminish the open warfare that continued to rage in the streets of Chicago, a violence that at times got very personal. Most speakeasies and nightclubs serving illicit alcohol provided entertainment in some form, mostly jazz or a vocalist with a band. One of these entertainers named Joey Lewis was a regular performer at the Green Mill, a club that was owned by the outfit. As compensation, Al Capone gave Jack McGurn a piece of the club's profits, and when McGurn found out that Lewis was not going to renew his contract and was going to earn more money at the Rendezvous, a Northside gang operation, he confronted the singer-comedian and told him he couldn't leave. Lewis brushed him off, said his contract was up, and that was that. He actually performed at the rendezvous for a week, protected by a bodyguard who accompanied him to and from his hotel residence. Lewis then decided he didn't need protection and that McGurn had only been trying to scare him. On November 9, 1927, seven days after he opened at his new club, three men showed up at Lewis's Commonwealth Hotel room, burst in on the sleepy Lewis when he opened the door, and pistol-whipped him into unconsciousness. Then one assailant took a large knife to Lewis's throat and mouth and even cut off part of the singer's tongue. Although they could have merely shot the defiant entertainer, the thugs instead sent a terrible message to Lewis and any other performer who attempted to assert such independence. Joey Lewis managed to crawl into the hallway was quickly taken to a hospital where he underwent extensive but successful surgery. He recovered but eventually became a stand-up comedian, his voice now a bullfrog-like croak, no longer able to belt out nightclub standards. Ironically, most likely to counter the public outcry over the incident, Al Capone actually went out of his way to patch things up, claiming to Lewis personally that he knew nothing about the attack and that Joe should have come to him if he had a problem. Capone also got him back to the Green Mill, equaling the deal at the rendezvous, and gave Lewis winning tips at dog and horse races controlled by the outfit. Lewis's career continued successfully well into the 60s, and a biographical film starring Frank Sinatra called The Joker is Wild was produced in 1957, reiterating Lewis's terrible ordeal and recovery. Jack McGurn's high profile did not escape the violent scrutiny of the Moran Northsiders. Twice in early 1928, two of Bugs Moran's most reliable enforcers, Pete and Frank Gusenberg, managed to put him into a hospital via machine gun bullet wounds, but failed to kill him, McGurn able to identify his assailants both times. But neither Al Capone or his trigger man were able to focus on these two individual threats, caught up in other much more complicated and relevant power struggles. The first involved Frankie Yale, his former employer, who still had an important relationship with Capone. One of the major sources of top-grade liquor smuggled from Canada was an operation of boats, rum runners anchored just off the East Coast, outside of U.S. jurisdiction, that served as a distribution point for shipments from Canada and the Caribbean. 
a crucial source of liquor as opposed to the low-grade alcohol brewed on site in American cities. Yale had access to the supply and initially did business with Capone, transporting illegal liquor to Chicago by truck. Over time, these shipments were repeatedly hijacked to the extent that Capone felt that Yale might actually be the source of the problem. Further investigation confirmed this suspicion, and even after Capone went out of his way to patch things up with Yale based on their long-term relationship, the hijackings continued. Yale was most likely incensed at Capone's immense power and wealth and was also possibly aligning himself with the Chicago Aiello gang in its ongoing attempts to eliminate Al Capone. Yale's lengthy criminal career came to an end when a special hit squad, known as the American Boys, was dispatched to Brooklyn. This group consisted of non-Italian gangsters from Midwestern cities like Detroit and St. Louis, men like Fred Killer Burke, Fred Getz, a.k.a. Shotgun Ziegler, August Gus Winkler, and Raymond Craneneck Nugent. On July 1, 1928, Yale was lured out of one of his clubs on a telephone pretext, and he proceeded to head towards his residence, where his wife was allegedly experiencing some physical difficulty. His elegant bulletproof Lincoln was easy to spot, and a Buick packed with the American boys quickly began a high-speed chase that ended with Yale being shot through non-bulletproof glass by both a machine gun and shotgun. His car careened into the stoop of a brick residence, Yale already dead by the time the automobile came to a stop on the pavement. The Buick was later found nearby, weapons including a Thompson submachine gun inside. The gun was later traced to an arms dealer in Chicago, perhaps a deliberate message to any other mobsters in New York who might wish to cross Al Capone. Despite other evidence that clearly led back to the outfit, New York police investigators were completely stonewalled when they attempted to link the Capone gang to the murder. Frankie Yale's murder did not eliminate another Capone headache. On September 7th, Antonio Lombardo, the head of the Unione Siciliana, was walking down a downtown Chicago street when two assailants walked up behind him and his bodyguard and shot both of them in the head. It is believed that the two gunmen were Pete and Frank Gusenberg, the Northsiders now allied with Giuseppe Aiello against the outfit. Lombardo was tight with Al Capone, and this organization had been completely infiltrated by mobsters who used it to organize political payoffs and illicit activity. Giuseppe Aiello was intent on not only killing Capone, but also taking control of the Union. His ruthlessness was underlined when, within a few months, Lombardo's Capone-approved successor, Pasqualino Patsy Lillardo, was shot 11 times, murdered in his own apartment, his wife at home, Giuseppe Aiello either present for or having just left a placid business discussion. Three Northside gunmen, including Pete Gusenberg, were rumored to be the gunmen. Al Capone was already at his newly purchased property on Palm Island in Florida, but he was especially outraged by this latest incident, a close associate murdered in his own home in the presence of his wife, and this act served as a last straw. Aiello was eventually murdered in 1930, but Jack McGurn was already pushing for an additionally major response to the Northside gang, himself incensed by two attempts on his own life. Capone gave his approval to McGurn to plan a massive retaliation, but also indicated he wanted to be left completely at arm's length. 
exactly how Jack McGurn lured most of the consequential members of the Northside Gang to 2122 North Clark early on the morning of February 14th is still unclear. One frequently repeated story had allegedly hijacked decent Canadian whiskey being sold to Moran's gang at a good price, with the promise of another massive delivery on the morning of Valentine's Day. But why would Bugs Moran and his top people be present to merely offload a truck full of whiskey? Later, Moran would claim that the purpose of the meeting was a simple business discussion, but that doesn't really explain how McGurn would have been able to implement his scheme with such precision on such short notice. In any case, one by one, seven individuals associated with George Bugs Moran entered the garage at 2122 North Clark early on the morning of February 14, 1929. This group included Frank Gusenberg, a Moran hitman involved in numerous gangland killings, his brother Peter Gusenberg, another Moran killer and enforcer, Albert Kashalek, a.k.a. James Clark, a Moran bodyguard, and George Moran's brother-in-law, Adam Heyer, a Moran gang accountant, Albert Weinshank, a Moran speakeasy operator, John May, a per diem car mechanic, and Reinhardt Schwimmer, an optometrist who hung around the Moran gang, tolerated probably because he was a heavy gambler. It was either the arrival of Weinshank or Schwimmer, both of whom resembled Bugs Moran, upon which lookouts mistakenly singled the gang leader's presence in the garage. Because Moran showed up late, observed the hit team's car, which was disguised or might even have been a stolen police car, the gang boss drove on and never entered the garage. Initial historical accounts of the killing describe four men, Fred Killer Burke, John Scalise, Albert Anselmi, and Joe Lalordo, who entered 2122 North Clark. But more than five years later, a criminal named Byron Bolton was arrested with other members of the Barker gang. Bolton, a known former associate of Fred Getz, also known as Shotgun Ziegler, claimed that individuals Capone referred to as the American Boys had actually committed the crime. He designated Getz, Killer Burke, Gus Winkler, and Robert Carey as the actual shooters. It is unlikely that whoever planned the massacre would have used Capone enforcers like Lalordo, Anselmi, and Scalise, as the plan required the Moran gang members, several of them armed, to submit peacefully, tricked to believe that they were being arrested by police. The American boys would not be recognizable to the victims and would be able to pull off the job. Unfortunately, because none of the killers knew what Bugs Moran looked like, all seven of the men would be killed, the assumption that Moran was definitely one of the seven. A few minutes after 10.30 a.m., Jeanette Landsman, a housewife who lived in the apartment adjoining the garage at 2122 North Clark, heard a rapid knocking sound through the wall of her home. She looked out of her front window in time to see four men, two who seemed to be police, quickly getting into a car and driving rapidly down the street. When she went next door and tried to open the door to the building, it was stuck, but by now she could hear a dog howling from inside of the structure. This was Highball, a German Shepherd watchdog employed by the Moran gang. By then, another neighbor named Claire McAllister had also heard the commotion and the howling dog, and he was able to force open the front door and enter the building. He walked through the empty office and entered the garage, confronted by bodies slumped on the floor or against the wall, some with their heads completely caved in, blood everywhere. One of the men, 
Frank Gusenberg murmured something, but a horrified McAllister quickly ran out of the front door back into his apartment and told Mrs. Landsman to call police, who arrived by about 10.45. The first cop to get there, a police sergeant named Tom Loftus, informing them of the grisly scene and recommending that they update top officials in the police department. Loftus was even more stunned when Frank Gusenberg spoke up, and when the officer asked who shot him, Gusenberg only said, Police shot me. A seemingly absurd comment, except for the assailant's disguises. Gusenberg refused any additional details and was rushed to a hospital where he died at about 1.30, without naming anyone who might be involved. Al Capone made himself highly visible in Miami before and after St. Valentine's Day, commenting when he heard Bugs Moran's accusation that actually only Moran killed like that. Although Jack McGurn was eventually arrested for the crime, he was released for lack of evidence, McGurn having carefully and also visibly checked into a hotel with his attractive girlfriend, Louise Rolfe. Known thereafter as the Blonde Alibi, Rolf and McGurn eventually got married so that she could never be forced to testify against her husband. Although several witnesses were able to identify Fred Killer Burke, he was already a fugitive and eluded police by fleeing to a rural part of Missouri. No one was ever prosecuted for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Although Bugs Moran escaped injury, his gang was essentially neutralized, and in the early 30s, he left Chicago altogether. He resumed his life as a petty criminal, engaging in crimes involving forgery and bank robbery. Once one of the wealthiest criminals in Chicago, he died penniless of cancer in 1957 in Leavenworth Prison while serving a 10-year sentence for bank robbery and is buried in the prison cemetery in an unmarked grave. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre also turned the public and especially the federal government's perception of Capone from that of a local Chicago celebrity into a national menace. President Herbert Hoover told cabinet members that he wanted Capone put in prison and an investigation initiated by the federal government concerning Capone's evasion of income taxes began to pick up momentum. Whether or not Capone had paid appropriate income taxes was never really in question. He had never even filed a tax return of any kind, but maintained that he did not have any taxable income. So the challenge for federal investigators was proving that Capone did have income, which was difficult because Capone carefully avoided creating any kind of financial paper trail. He never endorsed checks, never had bank accounts, and concealed any property he owned with the names of family members or associates. But based on the huge sums that Capone spent on hotel suites, food, clothing, cars, and entertainment, it was clear that he had access to a great deal of money. By March of 1929, the federal government had successfully compelled testimony in front of a grand jury from Capone himself. While this investigation proceeded laboriously, in mid-1929, a curious incident occurred which only added to the mysterious lore surrounding Al Capone. In mid-May of 1929, Capone traveled to Atlantic City to participate in what became known as the Atlantic City Conference. Organized by Meyer Lansky, this gathering included almost all of American organized crime, including Capone, Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello, and many other gangsters from all over the U.S. The meeting was the first attempt by the American underworld to set up a national organization to oversee and make decisions 
to divide territory and adjudicate disputes without violence. Another underlying issue was a resolve to minimize the attention that Al Capone was generating, involving both the type of violence that occurred with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Capone himself, who routinely sought out positive media coverage and made himself publicly prominent to the point of celebrity, behavior that created hostility from other prominent underworld figures who abhorred attention of any kind. Following the conference, which concluded on May 16th, Capone intended to return to Chicago by train via Philadelphia. With some time on his hands, he and a bodyguard went to a movie, and when the film ended, upon leaving the theater, both men were arrested, searched, and found in possession of a firearm, in Capone's case, a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Within 24 hours, Al Capone pled guilty in front of a judge and was sentenced to a year in jail. Initially, based on the incredible speed of the process, there was suspicion that Al Capone might have staged the entire incident. With outrage over the murders of February 14th, a federal tax investigation underway, and the possibility that despite his power, other underworld criminals might try to assassinate him, what better place to hide out than in official custody? Capone was held in Eastern State Penitentiary, supposedly in a decorated, luxurious cell with access to sumptuous meals and even liquor. But today, even that perspective and Capone's conditions are the subject of debate. For Capone to willingly submit to extended incarceration in another state and to orchestrate the lightning-fast process that put him behind bars seems far-fetched. Most likely, this incident demonstrates how prominent Capone had become and the notoriety and hostility he generated from law enforcement. With time off for good behavior, Al Capone was secretly released on March 17, 1930, a day early amid an outcry from the press as to why he received such preferential treatment, the release and his whereabouts frustrating official Chicago's threats to bar him from the city if he tried to return. In hiding for several days, Capone finally appeared publicly, confronting both the Chicago police and the feds to arrest him. Having nothing to charge him with at that time, neither entity did, and Capone returned to his luxurious Lexington Hotel offices. But his respite was brief. In late April, the Chicago Crime Commission, a watchdog collection of businessmen with no legal standing, issued a list of the 14 most prominent public enemies in the city. Headlines about this list screamed over the front pages of every American newspaper. And when Capone attempted to hide out in Miami, he was continually arrested there as a public nuisance, harassment that he eventually successfully fought in court. But the inevitable legal noose was tightening. By late 1930, Capone associates Jake Guzik, Frank Nitti, and even Capone's brother Ralph were successfully prosecuted for tax evasion. Although a 1959 book, The Untouchables, by Elliot Ness and his co-author Oscar Fraley, assigns a great deal of the credit to Ness for taking down Capone, the final piece of this prosecutorial puzzle was assembled when Treasury agent Frank Wilson's investigative team, who tried to assemble a winnable case for years, got a casino cashier in the ship, one of Capone's largest Cicero gambling operations, to admit that cashier's checks made out in his name were actually a means to funnel money to Capone and others in the outfit. Ness's focus actually was more on destroying and seizing warehouse stores of alcohol, and while financially damaging, did nothing to hurt Capone legally. In popular culture, 
Ness is also depicted in the television series starring Robert Stack and in the 1987 Kevin Costner film as being in perpetual danger. In fact, Capone specifically ordered that none of the federal prohibition agents like Ness be harmed, as he felt it would attract even more attention from the Justice Department. The 1987 film version of The Untouchables is mostly a completely fictional account, especially confrontations between Ness, played by Costner, and Capone, played by Robert De Niro. In real life, Al Capone never met Elliot Ness face-to-face. Despite the eventual Hollywood misrepresentation, Capone and his attorneys, after indictments for income tax evasion were finally handed down on March 13th and June 5th of 1931, started negotiations with federal prosecutor George E.Q. Johnson over a guilty plea. Both sides agreed on a two-and-a-half-year sentence, which was officially entered on June 16th. But the judge in the case, James Wilkerson, wasn't buying it. At the official sentencing on July 30th, he threw out the plea deal and ordered the case to trial with the comment, quote, It is time for somebody to impress upon the defendant that it is utterly impossible to bargain with a federal court, unquote. Perhaps Wilkerson was sensitive about a previous sentence he imposed on Capone of only six months when the gangster was convicted of ducking a subpoena to testify about the St. Valentine's Day massacre, a sentence that was still under appeal. Despite the trial taking place in a federal court, the full reach of Capone's corruptive power was evidenced when the trial court was informed that the entire potential jury list was already in the hands of the outfit and that many potential jurors were already the subject of bribes or intimidation. Judge Wilkerson responded by merely switching the jury pool from another case at the last minute, allowing for an untainted group of jurors. Specific details, not only of Capone's lavish spending habits, as well as testimony linking him to profits from various rackets, were presented, that despite the defense's suggestion that Capone was merely a habitual gambler that lost much more than he won, Al Capone's legal good fortune ran out on October 18th when the jury returned with a verdict of guilty. Six days later, Capone received a sentence of 11 years, the longest sentence ever imposed for tax evasion. By comparison, Nitty and Guzik received 18 months and five years respectively. Although he would appeal, Capone was confined in the Cook County Jail until May 2, 1932, when the Supreme Court of the United States refused to hear his case. Immediately, the federal government prepared to send him not to Leavenworth, where Nitty and Guzik languished, but to the penitentiary in Atlanta, the system's harshest. He began serving his sentence on May 4th. A medical examination at Atlanta confirmed that Capone suffered not only from syphilis, but also the effects of long-term gonorrhea, which was more treatable than the former condition, which was incurable. Rumors of special treatment for Capone, even if it was merely from other prisoners attempting to curry favor with the gangster, or promises from him of payments once they were freed, persisted. Officials also were worried about threats to extort Capone while in jail, or even another convict killing him for the notoriety. On August 19, 1934, Al Capone was placed on another train with 42 other prisoners, a train that was very different from his ride to Atlanta on the Dixie Flyer, where he interacted with other civilians and played cards. It was armored with bulletproof plating, its windows barred, the Atlanta prison warden and numerous heavily armed guards along for the ride. 
The occupants were not told of their destination, but rumors had swirled for months about a newly constructed federal prison, even harsher than Atlanta, an escape-proof dungeon on an island in San Francisco Bay. It was called Alcatraz. Once the train reached Tiburon, a town just north of the bay, the train cars were loaded onto a barge, the men still not allowed out of the train for security reasons. Capone was among the second group of prisoners transferred to Alcatraz, the first a similar contingent of problem prisoners from McNeil Island, Washington. The conditions in Alcatraz were severe, each man assigned to a single 5 by 9 cell with a low ceiling, with mostly built-in accessories, including a bunk attached to the wall with chains. The new arrivees were warned that the swirling, freezing cold water around the island would drown them in a matter of minutes and sweep them out to sea, escape therefore impossible. Probably the most important facility in the prison was the cafeteria, where security was especially tight, with tear gas canisters that could be automatically activated to engulf the entire area in the event of a riot. No talking was allowed, and there were other stringent rules that if violated meant a trip to D-Block, a completely separate isolation unit which included cells imposing total sensory deprivation. Each day started at 6 a.m., prisoners dressed and then were taken to breakfast. After that, they went to work, usually some mundane task pushing a broom or working in the laundry. 11.30 was lunchtime, the most substantial meal of the day. A brief break back in the cells before work resumed for the afternoon. A modest dinner was served at 6.30, and afterwards the convicts were locked back in their cells. Capone took to passing the time with magazines. All mail was transcribed from its original print or handwriting to a different piece of paper. Some of Capone's equally prominent neighbors were Arthur Doc Barker and George Machine Gun Kelly. Like all other inmates there, he was permitted visitors, but only two at a time, under very specific guidelines, which precluded any ex-cons, including his brother Ralph. Because of his notoriety, his propensity for braggadocio about past criminal exploits, and his constant demands from the warden for special treatment, Al Capone was not a popular inmate. In fact, on June 26, 1936, another con stabbed him with a detachable blade of a pair of barber shears, which Capone survived. That same year, his wife visited him for the first time, but this visit was awkward. The convict only visible through a glass 3 by 9 inch hole, conversation barely audible, even when the speaker shouted through the screen provided for that purpose, and not exactly private. In August of 1936, another prisoner of Capone's stature arrived, Alvin Creepy Carpus, the only public enemy number one, named by the FBI to be taken alive. Carpus was the mastermind of the Barker gang and managed to pull off a crime wave of bank robberies, murders, kidnappings, and even a train robbery before he was arrested by the FBI on March 1, 1936, in New Orleans. In a memoir published over 30 years later, Carpus described Capone as a pale, shrunken figure. He would also observe firsthand on February 5, 1938, when Capone mentally and physically collapsed in the Alcatraz cafeteria, his health now starting to suffer severely from the tertiary syphilis that racked his nervous system. Capone was transferred to the small Alcatraz prison hospital and never returned to the regular inmate population.
He spent a considerable amount of time in the wing of the hospital designated for those considered to be psychologically unstable, in one of three cells known as bug cages, wire enclosures that permitted zero privacy. Finally, unwilling to merely release Capone before his time, the Bureau of Prisons allowed his transfer to Terminal Island in San Pedro, California, on January 6, 1939. By now, Capone's mental capacity was utterly diminished, his conversation peppered with the mention of celebrities, exploits, and future plans that were utterly delusional. Neither the Capone family or the federal government wanted the spectacle of a public release of Al Capone. Government doctors recommended that the family consign Capone to the care of members of the medical staff at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, the leading specialists in the nation on the treatment of neurosyphilis. Capone was secretly transferred to the penitentiary at Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and then officially released on November 16, 1939. His wife must have been shocked by the appearance of what had been the most powerful gangster in America. Stooped, thinner, with a receding hairline, and a perpetual bewildered grin on his face, he exuded a childlike manner. Capone underwent what was an experimental approach to a condition this advanced, an exposure to malaria that raised the body temperature to 106 degrees, hopefully inhibiting his disease. After four months of treatment, Capone and his family returned to his house on Palm Island. His expenses were now being picked up by Ralph Capone. In fact, when the federal government placed a tax lien on the Miami Palm Island property and threatened to auction it off, it was Ralph who paid $50,936 to settle the debt. Although shortly before his release, Look Magazine claimed Al Capone would soon resume his position as the head of the Chicago Rackets. His former lieutenant, Jake Guzik, summed up the situation accurately when asked about Capone's situation by shaking his head and responding ruefully, Al is nuttier than a fruitcake. Even if Al Capone had emerged physically unscathed from Alcatraz, the criminal landscape had changed forever. Prohibition was long gone, and with it the easy money that made a lot of the other rackets flourish. The demise of the henchmen, both rumored and actual, who participated in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, demonstrated how quickly fortunes changed for members of the outfit after Capone was successfully prosecuted. John Scalise and Albert Anselmi became part of a conspiracy to overthrow Capone, an intrigue that was discovered and punished by their murder only months after the February 14th massacre, perhaps at the hands of Al Capone himself. In late March of 1931, Fred Killer Burke was arrested, tried and convicted in the shooting death of a Michigan policeman, receiving a life sentence. He died in prison in 1940. Al Capone's successor, Frank Nitti, was not enthusiastic about some of the other American boys. Nitti ordered the 1933 execution of Gus Winkler after Winkler was suspected of helping FBI agents with an investigation in Kansas City. Fred Getz was also murdered in 1934 with any number of individuals possibly responsible, but based on the Cicero location of his death, most likely it was the outfit. Nobody had to take care of Robert Carey. On July 30, 1932, in New York City, he killed his girlfriend and himself in a murder-suicide. It took longer, but the demise of Jack McGurn was perhaps the most illustrative example of how quickly Capone's power diminished.
McGurn was always considered a braggart and a hothead, and with his mentor Capone gone, Frank Nitty had no use for him. Additionally, McGurn, now too recognizable as a hitman. For a while, McGurn tried to hustle a living as a golf pro, hanging out at a mobbed-up Chicago golf course, of which he was a part owner. By 1936, still married to Louise Rolfe, McGurn was broke, hadn't killed anyone in years, and was rumored to have threatened Frank Nitty if Capone's successor didn't let him back into the rackets. On February 14, 1936, seven years to the day after the infamous massacre he allegedly planned, Jack McGurn was bowling with two buddies, a regular Friday night outing. Shortly after midnight, three gunmen burst into the bowling alley and methodically shot him fatally in the head and back. Although technically this occurred on February 15th, earlier, on Valentine's Day, someone knowing that McGurn would be at the bowling alley left him an inscribed valentine with a drawing of a couple, apparently in need of cash, standing gloomily with a for sale sign next to all of their worldly goods. The printed message inside read, You've lost your job, you've lost your dough, your jewels and cars, and handsome houses. But things could still be worse, you know. At least you haven't lost your trousers. A similar lengthy demise awaited Al Capone. He spent most of the 40s in veritable exile in Miami. He could do little but take walks in the sunshine. An occasional photo of him in his pajamas fishing off the boat dock in the backyard would appear in national newspapers. By then, his medical condition was public knowledge, although it was described judiciously as a nervous condition or paresis, the word syphilis rarely mentioned in polite society. Penicillin was administered to him finally in the mid-40s, but that would do nothing for his already damaged mind. Al Capone died suddenly on January 25, 1947, aged 48. His death ascribed to a stroke and subsequent cardiac arrest. In his final years, he and his family survived on modest amounts provided by former Chicago associates and his brother Ralph. Upon his death, these payments ended. His wife had to sell her Miami home only a few years later, unable to maintain it. Although rumors of a vast hidden Capone fortune persist to this day, when he died, his personal attorney publicly stated that Al Capone was virtually penniless. Whether spent, stolen by others while he was in prison, or lost when his mind could no longer remember where he had hidden it, his estimated $100 million fortune, $1.5 billion adjusted for inflation, was gone. A psychiatrist examination just prior to the mobster's death indicated that he had the mental capacity of a 10-year-old. The New York Times was probably more accurate than it realized when its obituary called Capone's passing the end of an evil dream. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Al Capone. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Al Capone, His Life, Legacy, and Legend by Deirdre Bear, Capone, The Man and the Era by Lawrence Burgreen, and The St. Valentine's Day Massacre by William J. Helmer. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, 
please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>